0: Welcome to the Listening Society podcast, I'm Christina Jowett and in this episode I met with my dear friend and fellow King's student, Sumai Lamberti. Samai is a final year Classics student in the Arts and Humanities Faculty here at King's. And in this episode we discussed Classical Antiquity and the Myth of Narcissus, which was Samai's dissertation topic. And Samai also shared some of her key tips in succeeding in the dissertation and other pieces of extended writing. I hope you enjoy and please follow us on our Instagram page to keep up to date with new episode releases and etc. You can find us on at the Listening Society podcast. Okay, welcome Samai to the Listening Society podcast. We're so glad to have you uh, here today. Um, So I guess you can just start off with, um, would you be able to provide us with just an overview of your dissertation?
1: Sure. So my dissertation basically aimed to trace the literary influence of the myth of Narcissus found in Ovid's Metamorphosis within both medieval and renaissance literature and for those of you who do not know the myth of Narcissus is basically a myth in antiquity where there was a beautiful young boy and he was pursued by both female suitors and male suitors alike, but he rejected all of them because he was really vain and quite arrogant. And one suitor in particular named Echo, who was a nymph, was pursuing Narcissus and then he was like, you know what, I'm not interested, please go away. I'd rather die before, you know, we do anything. And as a result, Echo sort of pines away until nothing's left of her until her voice. And then one day, Narcissus was walking through a forest and came across a pool of water. Upon gazing into the pool of water, he sees an image and falls in love with this image. He doesn't know, in fact, that this image is, in fact, a reflection of himself. And following this, there's a huge, long discourse about how lovesick Narcissus is, about not being able to um be united with his beloved and how cruel his beloved is all the while we as the readers know the irony that narcissus has in fact fallen in love with his own reflection and then after he realizes that this image is in fact his own reflection he sort of goes has like a little mental breakdown as you would in the modern day and dies and his body is metamorphosized into a narcissus flower which is a daffodil And with this in mind, sort of this myth of Narcissus is actually one of the most famous in sort of antiquity and beyond and writers in each generation following sort of the classical period have engaged with topics and themes prevalent in this myth and have used this myth as a way to explore their contemporary culture. And my dissertation sort of aimed to tap into this and sort of see what it was about the figure of Narcissus that writers in particular found so interesting. And I chose to focus on the medieval and the Renaissance periods because the medieval period was sort of the first main literary period following antiquity, and the Renaissance followed the medieval period. So it was a good sort of juxtaposition and complement to each other to compare. To sort of break down each chapter, chapter one looked at the figure of Narcissus as presented in Ovid's Metamorphoses. Ovid was a Latin writer and one of the more famous Latin writers, and we get sort of the main myth of Narcissus from Ovid's metamorphosis. And I also looked at, in chapter one, sort of alternative versions of the myth found in antiquity, and how that sort of informed Ovid's representation of Narcissus. Chapter two, as I said, looked at the medieval sort of side of Narcissus, And in particular, I focused on Christian moralizing texts that moralized Narcissus, used him as sort of a figure that represented sin, arrogance, vanity, etc. I also looked at the Italian love poet Petrarch and sort of examined how Narcissus became this emblem of desirability, how self-love in itself became aesthetic. I can't say the word. How how self-love became, you know desirable and a key facet within medieval sort of love poetry and then i also looked at a french um, medieval love text called roman de la rose which basically blurred the moralizing and the erotic sides of narcissus chapter three was the renaissance which basically looked at the fluidity of the character of narcissus how he embodied both the sort of medieval strands of you know the moralizing and erotic subtext but also introduced a new side on narcissus which was creative narcissism which I'll go into. So for this I looked at a neo-Latin text called Narcissus by John Clapham. I also looked at Shakespeare and in specific his uh, poem Venus and Adonis and then I looked at John Milton and John Milton was the one where I examined creative narcissism. I can't say the word creative narcissus there oh well (laughs) quite hard to say it's a mouthful but yeah that's a brief View of the dissertation.
0: That's incredibly interesting, Samai. Um, I'm I'm actually, you know what's really kind of stuck <coughs> out amongst all the kind of clearly very interesting and um, you know, material is, is the bit about the daffodil. And I really wanted to ask yeah. you. So I presume the Latin name for a daffodil is narcissus. But yes. but why why a daffodil flower? I was interested to know. Um why not, you know, look like at a lily or something? I don't know. <laughs>
1: Well, I think flowers, particularly in antiquity, all held sort of certain meaning and had a certain etymology to And I think it just so happened that the daffodil in itself was associated with Narcissus. And I don't think it was for any particular reason. I just feel like that was the folklore behind it, that Narcissus was this daffodil. And it's quite interesting to see how from that point on, the daffodil in particular has been associated with narcissus so <clears throat> if you have a look at shakespeare's twelfth night in there there's a lot of symbolism of the daffodil and um it implicitly ties back to Narcissus, so although today in the modern day we might not really associate daffodils as much with Narcissus, it's quite interesting to see how the origin of the flower and the origin of the meaning of the flower is rooted within classical antiquity, much like quite a lot of sort of flowers that we have today.
0: Yeah, I I suppose we kind of um, it symbolised with maybe the start of spring. I mean, I'm not like a, 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 a you know, a flower expert, nor, nor do I claim to be, but um, I was thinking maybe, I don't know, is there any uh, significance there I, with, with the story?
1: I'm not entirely sure, to be honest, because I didn't look particularly at the flower. I looked more at um, the representation of Narcissus as this figure of self-love. But yeah. I guess that, the daffodil in itself, since Narcissa sort of died in order to be reunited with his loved one, that sort of marks a critical change in the sense that, you know, it's a transition from life into death. And perhaps spring has sort of, you know, the opposite meaning, you know, it's sort of from the dead of winter to sort of the rebirth and the rejuvenation of spring. So perhaps sort of today, the sort of transition from, you know the winter the dark sort of you know death of winter to the life brought about in spring has sort of a juxtaposing um connection with the sort of death of narcissus but that's only yeah. a speculation
0: that's really interesting no, I think that, that definitely makes sense and if it if it doesn't already exist then you just you've just coined that argument yourself so.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I know I can claim it here right here and now <laughs> yeah um yeah
0: So I guess moving on to the next question now, um, was there any particular inspiration um, behind choosing um, this, this topic?
1: Yeah, sure. So I think perhaps the reason why I chose sort of narcissists in particular was just because of how omnipresent narcissists is in contemporary culture since antiquity. Even today, you know, narcissists, narcissism is a uh, key phenomena that you know most people are associated with or you know people kind of know about and that has its origins within um, psychology and in particular sort of Sigmund Freud and at that moment in time Sigmund Freud was communicating with you know generations and generations of past writers engaging with narcissists so it's interesting to see how in today's culture narcissists has sort of this implicit but also, you know, overarching um, influence within modern culture, within, you know, various different facets, you know, science, psychology, literature, art. there's even operas on Narcissus, which is just so interesting. So I just sort of wanted to tap into this and sort of see what it was about Narcissus that was just so intriguing to writers and just people in so many different professions. Initially, sort of my main dissertation idea was to do a big history of, you know, the influence of narcissists from antiquity to modern day. But that would have been a whole book in itself and just simply unattainable within 10,000 words, which sounds quite ironic because 10,000 words is quite a lot. But um, I decided to narrow it down to both the medieval and the Renaissance periods just from my research, because those were the two periods which I found, you know, particularly interesting in their Um, communication with narcissists and both periods as well you know had clear links but also deviations from each other so they were quite good to sort of group together within sort of the framework of a dissertation and I think sort of another reason why I chose this this topic even though sort of I focused on literature was because of how inspiring narcissists was in art you know art is a whole different medium that in a way is connected with literature and the modern day but in sort of the pictorial um sort of aspect and i was quite i like art i like going look going looking at different artists and whatever and it's just interesting to see how narcissist is a repeating and recurring motif so if you go from like Caravaggio's Narcissist which is you know a key defining figure to Gustave Morio's Narcissist which is you know more Victorian and sort of more aesthetic and decadent in its composition to Salvador Dali's Narcissist which is a complete sort of you know explosion in itself so sort of the be- artistic interpretation of Narcissus really drew me in and then from there from my research I was able to sort of narrow it down to both the medieval and the renaissance periods but to sort of sum up um the inspiration behind the picking Narcissus was just how important and how influential he has been as a figure for and as a vessel as such for cultural exploration since um, antiquity.
0: That's really interesting. Yeah, and it's actually like looking right now at Caravaggio's um, narcissus paintings, and it's really interesting to see how, how, how like you know, it's it, it how it seems to be uh, an incredibly um, prominent feature throughout. You know, Baroque artwork. Uh, there's some beautiful romantic images here, and like you know, it's very. I think I don't know about you. Your research into the artwork in particular but they're all very like you know pastorally themed as well which is beautiful mm-hmm. to see you know like the the reflection that's of of you know of um narcissus in the water that's so beautiful I, is there any other kind of um favorites that you have where it portrays narcissus uh, in art mm-hmm. uh, yeah
1: that's quite hard I quite like um Oh, I've forgotten the name, but it was a romantic interpretation of Narcissus, and it was in conjunction with some other myths from Ovid's Metamorphoses. And it was just interesting to see the connection between Narcissus and these other classical figures. But just sort of draw upon sort of the pastoral setting that you picked up, it's quite interesting to see how he's always situated in a pastoral setting, because that is how he's represented in the myth. But funnily enough, in classical antiquity, Pastoral settings often have an insidious sort of meaning. You know, if something is sort of in the sort of depths of the woods in sort of antiquity, that's a signpost that something bad is going to happen. So in it's art. Like a foreboding,
0: artists, like a foreboding trope, yeah. maybe. Yeah.
1: All yeah, right. That's
0: so it interesting.
1: It was like, you know, this setting which, you know, um, anticipated misfortunes to come. And this is often juxtaposed with in the reflection of the water, because it's like, what does he see, you know, what does he see in the water? And it often invites viewers and readers alike to see themselves in the water and, you know, evoke some sort of deep self reflection and self consciousness within the surface of the water, which is why sort of the artistic uh, representations of narcissists in particular are just so interesting because of the whole pictorial combination that they evoke.
0: Yeah I think that you know sometimes the most successful philosophies or the most successful li- pieces of literature are <coughs> like you said they force you to yeah. be self-reflective I think that's the most like poignant way of, of, of making a point or you know in 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 the arts and humanities is is that self reflexive nature um, and yeah like you said that's that's very prevalent here so that's that's incredibly interesting wow um, and so I think you know this leads me on now to what was your um, what was your overall argument um, in your dissertation and did it change at all throughout the time you're writing it and I guess you know if you if you have time to touch upon it um, did your question change. As you're writing or did did it kind of stay the same from the start?
1: Yeah that's a good question. So I think my main argument kind of stayed consistent just because from you know anyone sort of looking at Narcissus from a modern perspective would just know how fluid he was as a figure. So my overall argument was that Narcissus was an incredibly sort of fluid figure He essentially became a vessel for writers in each generation and epoch to explore contemporary thought in relation to self-desire, morality, creation, and just general sort of self-reflexivity. And as a result, Narcissus as a figure just represented a a multitude of different things that was inherently tied up in contemporary historical contexts as well. So, And I think that argument stays true even today, you know, when we look at science, you know, narcissism as a phenomenon that is tied up with modern science, with modern psychology and, you know, but it still is reminiscent of past scientific thought and past psychological engagement with the figure. So I think it's an argument that still rings true today. And that was sort of the main argument of my dissertation. But each chapter in itself had sort of sub-arguments that um, supplemented and supported the overall main argument. So sort of in chapter two, where I look at the medieval period, it was evident to see how narcissists became a fear that not only re- represented Christian morality, which I find fascinating because, you know, back then in Ovid's period, Christianity didn't really exist, you know? It was a phenomena that came after towards the fall of the Roman Empire and Ovid was like way you know way towards sort of he was closer towards Julius Caesar for I think people who are not so familiar with classical antiquity I think that's a good benchmark so it's interesting to see how this figure became evocative of morality and Christianity when he was never you know intended to do so so that was you know in the medieval period in the medieval period too he also represented eroticism, self-desire, and um, questions pertaining to, you you know, how desirable is self-desire, and how does self-desire feed into, you know, normal human relationships. So that was, you know, the key dichotomy within the medieval period was morality versus eroticism. But of course, that feeds into the main argument of how incredibly, you know, how narcissists can evoke so many different things. In the Renaissance, sort of my main argument was that the Renaissance writers um, kind of combined both Christian morality and medieval um, romanticism. The these interpretations of narcissism of narcissus, sorry, they combined it into one and played with both at the same time. But also a new feature of narcissus came up, which was creative narcissism, and essentially that was where artists the inherent creation the inherent creation process requires narcissism and that is actually something that still rings true today you know when you create something that is you know in essence even if you are um you know using things as inspiration or r- drawing about you know a particular you know myth or something the creative process of art in itself requires narcissism because you are in essence you know taking drawing for upon your your psyche or self-reflexivity or consciousness so you know this just requires inherently narcissism and for this i use john milton because you know um paradise lost god creates you know adam and eve in his like in his likeness you know they look like him that's just creative narcissism and that, that's something that you know still rings true today and i guess again feeds into the main argument that Narcissus represents a whole plethora of different things, and just the representation of him develops and meanders and deviates per generation.
0: Yeah, it's very interesting. Yeah, interesting to hear about um, the John Milton, uh, John Milton hmm. argument where you see, yeah, uh, you, you have Adam and Crete, uh, Eve created, and there's this narcissistic theme throughout. And I think, I guess, in a sense, like you could also, I know probably, you know, Satan, the snake, the serpent, just is there. And you could also, you know, that he is, this figure is is narcissistic as well. It's like oh, we're just a world of narcissism in a sense, like you know, there's the, there's the, you know, the Eve is portrayed as a narcissist. There's you know clearly Adam as well. Like it's there's so many arguments, and it's incredible. It's so interesting to you talk about now because it's all connecting together. Um, you know, it's it's really cool. Um, so, I John I, moving on. Now.
1: Sorry, sure. you, you go. I was just gonna say, John Milton in itself could have been like a whole dissertation topic, and it was quite a, like difficult to uh, narrow down the uh, the main sort of narcissistic argument I was going to go for. But as you, you say, Eve as a narcissist is such a big topic in scholarship and how this reflects Adam's narcissism, Satan is actually a foil to God's narcissistic creation. It's just like, as much as you don't want to, like people don't want to think about it because it is a Christian story about the creation of mankind. Just narcissism, narcissism permeates pretty much every facet of the poem, both on a macro level and a micro level. And it's just a fascinating topic. So um, for one, I would certainly encourage people to have a look at if they have time.
0: Yeah, and yeah, indeed. I think, uh, yeah, it's just everywhere, sadly, isn't it? <laughs>
1: <laughs> Honestly. <laughs> yeah.
0: Um, so, yeah, moving on. Um, I think, yeah, I'd would, I would love to ask you about your research strategy um, mm-hmm. ha- and how did your research inform your argument and, you know, overall dissertation?
1: Yeah. I want to start off here by just saying that uh, research and reading I think makes up like 80% of one's dissertation because you know when you first pick a topic you might have an interest in it but you don't really know that much about it and it's only your research that informs you which arguments you might take which texts you're going to focus on like what really is it that interests you so for me, my research strategy, firstly, was just reading as much as I can. My bibliography ended up being about 100 like items long, which is a bit excessive, I must say so myself. But I think it just reflects, you know, the deep reading I did in order to create this piece. So I think in terms of strategy, the first thing I did was to read really broadly about narcissists and sort of his influence within cultural history, as this gave me a feel for sort of the main arguments critics had on the general reception of Narcissus, and also helped me inform, like, and also helped inform me on which texts I was going to focus on within the medieval and the Renaissance periods. Because, like, even though I focused on three key texts per chapters, there are just so many, just so, so many, and it's quite hard to pick the right text for the arguments I was going to make. So that first step in reading broadly really helped me. And then secondly, I sort of focused on the specific time periods and um, the specific arguments I was going to make in each chapter and read more focused around that. And this helped inform me on the structure of what each chapter was going to look like. And also helped me make choices as to the text that I was going to choose. So, for example, at this stage, initially, I thought I was going to do Shakespeare's Richard II, which is one of his sort of historical plays, because Richard II in himself is a narcissist. But then after reading, I was like, you know what? I'm going to focus on Venus and Adonis, which is Shakespeare's first ever published um, poem, like first ever published work, because that really fitted the themes that I was going to touch upon more so than Richard II, and I think this is just a key tip about doing um a dissertation overall is to like don't be afraid to like discard things that you don't think are that relevant because you know I had done lots lots of research on Richard II and it felt you know like a stab in my heart that I was going to have to let it go but in the end it was for the better. And then sort of following this step three, I did sort of in-depth research on each of my texts. So I can sort of say that my dissertation was sort of structured into mini essays around each text that overlapped and had connections between each. And in order to do so, I had to be really well informed of the critical reception of each of these texts. So I looked at, you know, scholars. I looked at scholars with contrasting opinions with each other, older scholars newer scholars that responded to such older scholars to sort of get it like a timeline of the critical engagement with these texts. And this really helped me not only to form my own opinion, I could be like, look, this is my argument. This is what I believe. X critic has a similar line of thought. X critic disagrees. And I disagree with X critic too, because of X, Y, and Z. So it gave me a chance to really engage critically with text, which is really key to push you into sort of the higher bands of the marking of the dissertation. And it also helped me to sort of use it as an area to have a look at the blind spots that critics didn't look at. In particular, for example, in um, the neo-Latin texts I chose for the Renaissance, John Clapham's Narcissus, there wasn't much critical engagement with that. And that, that was very much focused on, and whatever critical engagement there was, it was focused on, Clapham's influence on Venus and Adonis, Shakespeare, and I use that as an opportunity to make my own arguments, to be like, look, critics believe this, with my own engagement with the text, this is what I believe, and it's really important to have that strong authorial voice, and don't be afraid to, you know, make arguments yourself that critics haven't said so previously, so... I think that's sort of the research strategy I employed with a couple of tips as well on how to uh, incorporate research and critical analysis within the overall dissertation.
0: Yeah, that's great. Um, There's definitely so much advice there for, you know, uh, baby people in my position going into third year, looking at writing dissertation. So that kind of leads itself really nicely onto, like, my next question, which is, um, you know, for any undergraduate listeners or even, you know, other other students that are writing you know long essays or you know dissertation style work um is there any advice you would give um you know like any you know golden nuggets of 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 you know experience or anything at all that you'd be able to share
1: yeah I think I definitely have some tips um of course this is just sort of from my perspective and my experience of writing a dissertation but hopefully it can help some more people I think firstly, and most importantly, you're going to sort of hear this from a lot of people, but actually choose a topic that you are interested in and you enjoy. Because trust me, you know, getting a dissertation, writing a dissertation, particularly towards the end, can get really tedious. You might be like, you know, I don't want to do this anymore. I just want to get this done. Why am I doing this? You know, but if it's on a topic that you enjoy, it just makes it a little bit more easier. You know, you procrastinate just a little bit less. <laughs> um because just if you do doing a topic you know you have tons of words left to write a deadline coming up and it's on a topic that you don't enjoy like just the quality of the work at the end is going to reflect that just because you know you're going to be like i mm, don't really want to do this plus it's on i don't know who don't i like i don't know um plus it's on maths so i don't like maths <laughs> i'm not really good at it plus my dissertation's on maths so i don't want to do this you know it's just going to make it just that much harder for you to write it. Because, you know, writing a dissertation is sort of a marathon, you know, it's little and often. So doing it on a topic that you enjoy just makes that little bit more easier. And that sort of leads me on to my next sort of tip is just to do a little bit, but often, you know, break it up into manageable chunks, you know, break it up into chapters and break those chapters into sub-chapters and break those sub-chapters into paragraphs and that just makes it that little bit more easier for you to write it and you to engage fully with that portion of um, the disc that you're writing about, because if you think like, oh, tonight, I'm gonna write the whole of chapter two, then your brain might be scattered around all the different things that you need to write in chapter two. Whereas if you sit down and and say like, look, I'm going to write paragraph one on text one of chapter two, then your mind is inherently focused just on perfecting that one portion of that overall chapter. And if you do that little and often, that will gradually build up to the whole dissertation. and it just will be a much higher quality of work because you've inherently you know focused in and narrowed down um, your attention on that one little portion for that you know that night or that week or whatever your whatever time frame you set out for yourself. So I'd advise to really structure it well and break it down into more manageable chunks. Um, I think that sort of leads me on to my next point. In a sense, it's like just don't panic. <laughs> um, dissertations are long. It's meant to be long and extended pieces of writing. And trust me, I know so many people who have left it to the last minute, rushing it precisely because they're doing a topic that they don't really enjoy, or they haven't done, they haven't really managed their time to write it in, you know, manageable chunks. And this just leads people to panic and, you know, just write stuff which just isn't that good quality. So I just feel like, you know manage your time well you know know when your deadlines are and set strict deadlines for yourself and do prioritize it especially towards the end because you know your dissertation is worth i think in most universities like 30 credits it's quite a lot and you really do have the opportunity to blow it out the park you know it could be the difference whether you get like a 2-1 or a high first so like really do focus on it because it can really you know make the difference within your undergraduate degree so in that sense like just don't panic <laughs> take your time with it um treat it like a baby it needs lots of love lots of nurturing um I think also like another key piece of advice that I learned throughout writing my dissertation is really do define your parameters um I think this is incredibly important because people in, in their dissertations will have Most of the time will have key buzzwords that they look back upon. So to me, for example, it was creative narcissism, erotic, moralizing, etc. These are key terms that I always referred back to. But it's really important to define what these terms are, and more importantly, how these terms are defined within your specific context of your dissertation. So, for example, if I take the word erotic, that can mean so many different things, you know, to so many different people. So I had to be you know, clear with what I meant erotic meant in the context of my dissertation and what other critics also thought so. It's also, like, quite, like, a handy thing. If you're defining your parameters, try and find sort of, like, critics to sort of back up your interpretation of these terms. Because if you don't lay out these parameters and then write your dissertation using the words like moralising, erotic, creative narcissism, and just haven't defined it, then your examiner is going to be like but what does this mean you know you refer to creative narcissism in your argument with john milton but what does this mean so i think it's really important to define parameters just to give you sort of a taste of how important around a quarter to a third of each of my chapters was dedicated towards defining these parameters it was almost as long as an analysis in one of the texts so be careful to define your parameters, root it within critics and historical context and just be very clear and concise with that, because trust me, you can make or break the dis. So, yeah, those are some of the tips that have come to mind um, and I hope you guys find it helpful.
0: <laughs> Thank you so much. Yeah, that's that's brilliant. Some really useful uh pieces of advice there so why thank you so much uh so you know you're about to graduate from king's college london oh. uh, and you're a <coughs> future trainee solicitor at the magic circle law firm allen overy. and overy uh indeed. i wanted to ask you <laughs> this this brings me on to ask you You know what are your plans for the future post king's pre uh pre-training contract um yeah. and 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 beyond if you'd like so, so yeah <laughs> <are your> <laughs>
1: Yeah, well, I think, firstly, I have to say that I'm very fortunate, I feel, to have, you know, secured a training contract within my final year. Um, Getting these jobs, particularly in today's market, it's just so, so hard, requires so much work. And, you know, so many people, you know, try as hard as they can, like, just get it for whatever reason. So I just feel, you know, really grateful to the fact that you know I've managed to secure a job um, and not just a job but you know a future trainee solicitor at such an esteemed firm like Allen and Overy. so I'm really just basically like really excited for what the future has to come and you know doing something that's completely different to classics law is I mean it is related in a sense because the law originated in in sort of ancient Athens, but just doing something that is completely different to classics is really exciting. So I'll be starting my law conversion in January. So from now until January, I have some time off firstly to sleep and recover from writing a dissertation. (laughs) All those late nights have to uh, need to recover from that. But in the meantime, I think I I was planning on sort of creating sort of like a legal student consultancy business in the sense of, you know, because I've gone through the whole journey, I've come out of it alive. Um, and on the way I picked up lots of handy tips and tricks on how to, you know, progress onto the final stages of law firm interviews, cause they're highly competitive, you know, like, I think I was reading the magic circle only take like less than 2% of people, of all people who apply. So they're all insanely competitive. So I was thinking of creating sort of a consultancy sort of business where, I help students, you know, in positions in people who are who are in similar positions to myself to help them get, you know, training contracts at top firms like Allen and Overy. And I was thinking of sort of launching that pretty soon before the new application season. And I'm just sort of in the middle of planning that and um, perfecting sort of my timeline for that. So hopefully, if all goes well, um, if you are someone who is looking to go into law particularly from a non-law background because I study classics but it's so you know you don't need to study law uh, to get into law and in fact you know top law firms hire you know 50 percent of their cohorts from people with non-law backgrounds so in a way you're actually at an advantage <laughs> but um if you're looking to go into law like don't hesitate to uh reach out to me if you have any questions I'll be more than happy to help and do keep your, an eye out for hope this sort of um cute little uh, legal consultancy business that I'll be setting up soon
0: definitely I'm sure I'm sure we'll uh, we'll we'll promote it on our uh, instagram so to listeners out there that aren't following our instagram follow it uh, and I will also put Samai's, uh Instagram handle if she's okay with it on there so you can contact her sure. if, uh, you were looking for any advice. So yeah. Uh, I, I guess this this comes to the end of the episode. Um, but Samaria just want to say a, a massive thank you uh, for coming on the episode today uh, and sharing with us your dissertation, um, topic, advice and other things. It's been fascinating. And I hope that you know soon we can have you back maybe also discussing something else.
1: <laughs> yeah Of course. Thank you for having me. Pleasure as always. And um to anyone listening, like the best of luck with all your endeavours. And um hopefully this is not the last of me on this podcast. <laughs> Definitely isn't. <laughs> all right.